what you're about to hear is a discussion between myself and two other members of the editorial staff, Levi and Harry, as we talk about the character of Odysseus, the concept of education and the examined life, uh, and the ways in which those ideals, being educated, of having an examined life, have played out in stories like the Odyssey, the Iliad, and a lot of the other Greek epics, and how they kind of carry through history in, in various permutations and forms up until today, and how that relates to our project. So Levi, Harry, it's great to it was great to have this discussion with you, and I hope that the listeners enjoy. Indeed, very much. It starts off a bit abruptly, because we realised as we were setting up for the podcast that we were getting good material in. So um, <laughs> you're being dropped in the deep end, but I'm sure everyone will keep up. Absolutely. I think um, if you're looking for lost treasure, we might find a few nuggets here. All right, well, without any further ado, here is our discussion on Odysseus and the Examined Life. Um, yeah, so anyway, um, Harry, go on. So we were just talking about uh, Mary Harrington's term post-literacy and, and the fact that even we who are starting this project are barely literate by the standards of, of you know, the, if we were to enter a philology degree 80 years ago or 100 years ago, we would be kind of probably laughed at. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so it's this, there's this um, a, a difference in what the base standard of level of education should be and, and the purposes of education have changed, right? So there's mm. like, there's the shift from classical education to forming the modern factory worker. And so the factory worker is still sort of the main uh, labor unit in a society now. Um, mm. It's not that we work in a factory that makes, you know, countries like Australia and United States and so on are deindustrialized. So, mm. so we're not actually making products directly, but we're in a factory system, which is a systemized labor component that can be chopped and changed. So mm. we have commoditized labor. Mm. That's sort of distinct. That, that mode of um, education is to create one of those cogs is very different to the classical ideals of education, you know, truth mm. for truth's sake and those types mm. of questions. And it, it's something that you think you see the seeds of, even in the era that we're like, I'm referencing now, like 80, 100 years ago, or even a little bit further, like I would, I look at that and like, oh, it's when, you know, Auerbach, Nietzsche, Tolkien, like all these philologists who observed literary minds existed. And two of them, my name just were, were German, but in the English speaking world, you know, uh, 150, 100 years ago, and, and, and going a little bit further back too, the purpose of the education system was already transforming into the COG model because, economic. Of, because of the British Empire and the East India Company and the idea of we need to train young men to be capable clerks and administrators in this worldwide system we've got. Mm. And so even things like the development of team sports, team sports and rugby and all that sort of stuff, cricket, and the fact that they transplanted those sports all around the world whenever they went, it was like the, those sports had a, well, an agenda in a sense. It was these are character building, you know what I mean? And it's not like the team sports are a bad thing, you know what I mean? It's not like, oh, it's something insidious about teaching boys how to play rugby. <laughs> like, it's, it's like, it's obviously, it's, it's a good thing for, for boys who go out and do sport. But there, yeah, there was there were purposes behind certain ways that these were being implemented. And it obviously wasn't, the reason for which people were being educated was perhaps somewhat higher than a factory worker. Even if you could argue that the what they those people went and did was often quite negative towards the peoples being colonized, at least the idea of them being administrators and et cetera, they're serving some sort of higher function. There's a higher ideal in place than simply another brick in the wall. <laughs> Um, right, yeah, the seeds are there back then. Right, and that's the sort of the tyranny of economics, right? 
mm. in that um, even if we look back to those, um, those time periods you're talking about, most people were engaged in more menial labor than now. People, uh, the all these sort of processes and technologies that we we benefit from now didn't exist. They lived in um de they lived in unindustrial countries, not not deindustrialized mm. like we are now. But the tyranny of economics is sort of this, you know, what's the utility of learning Greek? What's the utility of learning Latin? Uh, when you hit the job market, what's the uh, what's this? What's the benefit? Um, you know, if you if you ask Plato, it would be well, there's you know, there's truth to be found, right? There's that, and that's a there's that's a value in itself. I suppose if you if you subscribe to this economic model of life, there seems to be nothing worth doing that doesn't have a dollar at the end of it. It's interesting. Um, well, you mentioned Plato, and we go back, you know, in the first issue and and throughout this whole project, we're really looking at the idea of the examined life, which is you know one of Socrates' um, little I don't know. It's one of those little distilled bits of wisdom that you can you can then plug into different aspects of the Socratic project and different Platonic texts and, and use it to kind of unlock things, you know, like it's one of those very distilled things that we, that Plato wrote down about, about Socrates, the idea that the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, mm. But it's interesting because Xenophon, who again, we discussed in the first issue and is someone who is sort of got the short end of the stick because everyone's like, well, he's not a good historian as Thucydides, he's not a good philosopher as, as Plato. Xenophon's not really that good which is a shame because Xenophon is really good, you know, yeah. in his own way. But, you know, he was interested in, he wrote the um, the economics, like his, one of his main Socratic treatises was on economy through Socrates teaching, through the lens of Socrates ideas. And it's a very different book to like economic texts, such as someone like Mill or Marx later on, you know. Um, right. And so uh, it is like this shifting of um, hierarchies and priorities, right? That in a, in a previous age, the economic concerns were subordinated to these higher ideals. And there's, there's like been a reversal, I guess. Why, why would you think that that's been the case? Um, I, I think it's interesting because we're about to, well, I mean, <laughs> this is, this can be, this might be a nice segue because we, we did start this call with the intention of discussing Odysseus and I'm enjoying this bit so far. So I'm not rush into it, but I'm going to bring him up now because we, we imagine, like, let's imagine you know, Odysseus, he's the top of an economic hierarchy. He's the king of Ithaca. So he's mm. he's responsible for maintaining the agricultural output of the lands that he holds. And he wants to see that continue such that his son will inherit workable land. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is not feudalism at all, but there is, and, and whether or not this exact system as Homer describes it ever happened, like Homer is writing about a past that no longer exists, he's writing about the heroic age, a mythic past, but the mythology is important because the idea is that in this golden age in which things were supposedly better, not always, but for the most part better, um, and this isn't even really the golden age because the heroes of this time, like Nestor is like, yeah, you guys are nothing compared to the real golden age. But nonetheless, the idea that in this time, which Homer's writing and Homer is such a, a blueprint for a lot of Greek writing after him and Greek thought, you have these, these models of the king and the land. And so the education of a hero of a of a king who's going to maintain this is really multifaceted and you get this in Odysseus he's very mobile on the hierarchy because he's 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 friends with a swineherd you know he comes back to Ithaca and he's he's hanging out with his swineherd and that's like the lowest tier you know of a mm, mm, of mm, an mm. economic and social pyramid or ladder you're looking up to pigs it's not a very good job 
no one's going to really want to sit around you for drinks after work because so you're going to stink. Um, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. out in the fields, you know, you're you're not in any desirable position. But Odysseus, when he comes back to Ithaca, is interacting with with one of these guys and and knows this person, and it's interesting because there's yeah, there's an element to which Homer's highlighting that, like he Homer could have had him meet anyone on the, on the way home. <clears throat> and and there's I guess there's this idea where labor hasn't lost its honor. Um, like it has now. There's nothing wrong about being a swine herder. There's mm. nothing dishonorable about working in the fields or something like that. I mean, Paris, supposedly the son of the King Priam, is a shepherd, <laughs> you know, in the beginning right. of the Trojan mythic cycle when the goddesses come to him and make him cast lots. And there's, you know, different reasons for why that might be the case, you know, like, oh, well, maybe he, you know, there's a prophecy about him, so they send him off like they do with everybody. Um, it's not unusual for heroes. I mean, even, you know, in the Gospels, Christ is a carpenter. Right, and, and the, there's blacksmith gods who make, uh, you know, Achilles' shield and armor and yeah. so on. And there's, so there's these labors and artisans um, that are at the highest level of the, uh, like, ontological hierarchy even. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is going into something maybe not directly relevant to the conversation, but, you know, Hephaestus, the blacksmith god, is married to one of the highest gods, you know, beauty itself, which... Is something that everybody recognizes, you know, like the good, the true, and the beautiful. The beautiful is always up there in this in the very higher echelons of the divine world. Yeah. And and you see that as well, I think. And I mean, I'm just gonna jump off that, which is the fact that beauty, Aphrodite, is, you know, there's disputed myths about her origins, but it's often that she's predates even the or she springs directly from I always forget if it's Uranus or Kronos, but either way, when one of their genitals is cast in the ocean, she yeah, she emerges from the spray, the salt spray. <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, very, very. Um, which is, which is like there's sort of a a fundamental primacy to that as well, and that's mm. that's what you know craftsmanship is allied with. Though yeah. I mean, it's also the fact that isn't she like famously unfaithful to yeah, him as well with warfare. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's fascinating. It's That's in the Iliad. There's that famous bit where I think Hephaestus recounts the time that he made these invisible chains that were so yeah, subtle yeah, and yeah. fine that no one could see them. And he knew that Aphrodite was sleeping with warfare, with Ares. And so he, um, yeah, he set the trap and all the gods came and laughed at them and Ares was furious and, he, you know, lame Hephaestus, the cripple god, ugly cripple god was able to ensnare beauty and warfare and make a mockery of them to all the other powers of the heavens. It's interesting, like, Extra biblical texts like the Book of Enoch draw out the beauty, war, craftsmanship connection, because in Genesis, you get the line of Cain creating all these facets of civilization and culture. And then those are expanded a little bit because you have, I think, Tubal Cain is the smith. He's the worker in the line of Cain. And he's responsible for both. He's really interesting musical instruments, but also the weapons of war. Um, and it's, it's a little bit of an odd connection. But in the Book of Enoch, it, I believe it draws it out. And so you have the demons coming and telling the line of Cain, how to do all these things, like how to how to unlock all these crafts and secrets and, and knowledges. And so there's there's this link between ornaments, like the musical instruments, jewelry, cosmetics, leading to the necessity of weapons of war, because now men desire things. They desire other people's women because they've been adorned. They desire other people's goods because they've been guilt and inlaid. And so there's this weird relationship where the craftsman unlocks the marriage of um, the craftsman unlocks the marriage of beauty and warfare, which is... And there's an interesting parallel there, right, with the sirens, of course. Mm. So that where beauty and ornament and so on is actually the weapon of war. That's the that's the thing that's going to bring people in. And I suppose it's a trap. It's a it's not... That itself isn't actually the weapon, but it's a trap to um, ensnare. 
Yeah. A, another point just on the craftsmanship, you know, to bring it to the particular, Odysseus is the um, mastermind behind the Trojan horse. Yes, he's Odysseus a craftsman. Is the, right, and he's the craftsman who built his bed, which is made out of the great tree in his household. Mm. And that that's a central point to his um, regaining the the his identity at home in the end. Yeah, it's fascinating to go back because, and I don't know if this is maybe the right time to to close the chapter on this part of the discussion, move fully into this exploration of Odysseus. But it's interesting, I think, because we're outlining like an issue with education is not preparing us for what it could be anymore. And you look at a character like Odysseus, who's very well like the jack of all trades and master of most of them too. Like he's not an incapable guy. And there's a sense in which you don't necessarily see direct um acts of education in these in these works but the implication is telemachus his son has some deficits because he's grown up without a father and so during his journey in the early books when he's visiting the other kings like nestor and menelaus you're getting these moments of like you're getting glimpses into the idea of of how this preparation for kingship should work and you you get you hear of the the tragic incident of agamemnon right who who comes back from war and is murdered by his his unfaithful wife and her lover but then his son even in the absence of his father grew up with such like with, with the inspiration of his father's image such that he would take revenge and kill his own mother and his and the murder of his of his father and that's held up to telemarch everyone visits everyone's like hey, have you heard about agamemnon's son <laughs> and uh he's like yeah i've heard about him you know uh why aren't you going <laughs> up and killing you know the people pestering your mom and, and all that sort of stuff um but there's yeah there's implications of never explicitly but there's implications of all these things that constitute the growing into manhood and the adoption of kingship and part of that for odysseus is yeah so he's a craftsman and he's constantly referring to his stratagems and his crafts throughout the odyssey he's the one who devised and came up with the trojan horse uh you see moments of this when he goes back home and he has the bed he's crafted and he strings the, his own bow which no one else can but then there's aspects of understanding the system that he's ruling over because he has knowledge of and relationships with people along different levels he's engaged in different levels of the state and the agricultural system um but he's also a mighty man that's a big part i think of like the most explicit sort of what you might call education is that a part a lot of it is is training and you have these moments of the games in both the iliad and the odyssey where men get together and show off their prowess and their physical strength in contests against each other but hard of those games can be oratory and we'll get that's, that's actually this is a good transition because mm-hmm. what we're something that harry and i've been talking and wanting to unpick is the moment in which Ajax and Odysseus have a contest for the armor of Achilles. And so it's interesting. The Olympic Games is the iconic example of the Greeks developing these systems for which they would train and then by which they would prove themselves. And you could say there's an educational aspect to that. Like the gymnasium is as much a place for development as the academy. Yet part of the games in a lot of these ancient myths isn't just contests of strength, there's oratory involved as well, which we see when Ajax and Odysseus. Uh, dispute the armor of Achilles. Right. There's an interesting question here, which is that it appears that Odysseus is the ideal Greek uh, to the Greeks, but it's not simply that he's a perfect man. There's a lot of mistakes. There's a lot of times when things go wrong and he could have um, handled things better, but he's ideal in the sense that he corrects the brawn over brain that was uh, Achilles's primary fault. I wonder if Levi would like to speak to that 
component, the dialectic between Achilles and, and Odysseus. Uh, yeah, like in, in the way that Achilles sort of, sorry, that Odysseus represents here, yeah, that sort of ideal union of, of I don't know, I think one of the characteristic things that always stands out for me about Odysseus in the Iliad, as well as the Odyssey, is sort of his uncharacteristic restraints among the rest of the Greek heroes. Mm. That he has, mm. he's got this, you know, he's got a drive and a wit and obviously um, an, an ability in single combat. He's got this presence to him, but I think, I mean, when you're reading the Iliad, all you think is that this is some really crotchety old men and some, you know, <laughs> you know young male teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no one there to balance them out. And it's like, the only people you kind of think like, oh, yeah, I think he's being reasonable, are like Odysseus and like Diomedes, maybe. A little bit of Nesta, I guess. And Nesta, I <laughs> guess. I mean, Nesta's sort of, you know, the crotchety old man who's right most of the time. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to like... <laughs> But I mean, like, I think, I mean, the Achilles is built up of the flaws of, you know, young, impulsive men such as Achilles and um, Paris and such. Mm. And also, you know, Agamemnon, who lets his arrogance get the better of him. This is the tragedy of the war. Yeah, is none of these heroes are like they are they are heroes. That's that's the short end of it. Yeah, like Agamemnon, mm. for all his flaws, is a Greek hero. Achilles, for all his flaws, is a Greek hero. Paris yeah, mostly, I mean, you know, he's, he, he does some heroic things. He's probably less iconically a hero, but he belongs to the heroic circle. Class, yeah. 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 But nonetheless, the great tragedy of these, especially the Iliad and, and the Trojan War cycle in general, is that the unrestrained masculinity on display here, like this, this sort of like, I'm a hero, I'm a man, I'm displaying my physical prowess, and I, I will never check it because to do so might show possibly weakness or if I compromise with say like if Achilles and Agamemnon made a compromise it seems like they're to them it seems like they're um giving up more than they they wish of, of their own character and so yeah you, as you're saying characters like especially Odysseus and Diomedes who show more restraint and more ability to check themselves interestingly come out in both the stories and in the cultures that follow and, and look to them as the more manly mm. and heroic characters, because even through their flaws, and they like, you know, DC says his moments where he doesn't check himself. The the Cyclops is a famous example when he's sailing away and he taunts him. Um and and etc. But Odysseus, as you're saying, Harry, comes away as the paragon of the Greek heroes in a sense. Well it's the reveal I think it's quite revealing of like the the philosophical nature of the Greeks that they want to present to you here's here's someone who's guiling here's someone who's a mighty man who's strong and and has all of these these same types of abilities but he can actually um he has an analytical aspect where he can look into a situation and, and see where there's a better outcome it's is very different to other barbarian type stories where mm. it's simply the um you know it, it is simply a case of the strongest is the uh is the is the best the strongest is the one the physically strongest is the one who will win in the end it's it's more these questions of the understanding of a situation how there's multiple routes to the same goal and how um i suppose in odysseus there is this uh a close to perfect synthesis of of the greek ideals and i think um, but without but with faults he's not he's not perfect so that it's actually attainable in that sense um 
he he it's it's like you say with the with the cyclops it's not like he never has a makes a bad decision it's but he mm. learns mm. from these supposedly um or hopefully but it's it's that he's he's not perfect he just has other abilities that in the stories have value beyond just being the best spear thrower i think as well kind of what touching on education one last time because we, we talked a little bit about the gods and craftsmanship and beauty and all those, those things and i want to tie that back into our discussion of odysseus and this older model of education I think there's one final point that i'm coming to now that i think is relevant um which is that both socrates and odysseus kind of paragon heroes because we don't see this a lot in the socratic dialogues but we know from some of the scant biographical details that both socrates and Plato were not guys to mess around with. <laughs> like Plato's nickname, Levi, um, remind me, is... Um, yeah, uh, Pla- Plato is his nickname, come from Plato. It's broad, it's broad-shouldered, you know? Yeah, he's a, he's a big a guy. Yeah. Exactly, a big wrestler guy. And there's, you know, I, like there's the iconic stories about Socrates, you know, the soldier Socrates in the Peloponnesian War, Socrates who stood guard for like unmoving like an entire night and all these, these things. Yeah, so less so than Odysseus, these guys, we know exemplify the gymnasium ideal as well as the the um intellectual but i think it's important that both odysseus and socrates the final component of their education is attention or or, yeah attentiveness to a guiding spirit which in odysseus's case is athena and who also Mm. you know guides characters like Diomedes and Telemachus in the stories and in Socrates' case it's his daimon it's like this is this is maybe one of those aspects of education going back to the beginning of the discussion that's missing today is that there what is the spirit that we are attending to when we are training to become cogs in the factory machine you know what is the mm. is there an Athena is there a daimon I mean even in the British empire for like all it's the terrible things it did there was the idea of the spirit of progress the spirit of liberty there were you know all those classic you know kind Mm -hmm. of newspaper propaganda pieces the day of you know service um, to the nation yeah yeah and so there's there's like reference to these and you know there's shades of the enlightenment and all this stuff these references to these sort of somewhat secularized somewhat classical spirits that are guiding the modern nations like france england etc germany you know you see it in newspaper cartoons and in like Milton at the opening of Paradise Lost is kind of asking the heavenly muse in the way that um, Homer does. And he's making it very vague whether he's like kind of referring to something like the Holy Spirit or his conscience or just a pagan, <laughs> um, like this old pagan spirit to guide him in his in his theodicy, which is uh, interesting. But yeah, I think even in, even in those systems, the attentiveness to the divine, the, the guiding spirit is intrinsic to becoming a complete and an ed, like an all-rounded sort of character right and so there's this there's this sort of idea where you can't actually escape the concept of being guided by a spirit um mm. you just replace it with something else so now we have uh, you know we may have had the uh the guiding hand of the free market as this magical force above the economy <laughs> or or we might have something uh, like the spirit of progress the you yeah. know the wig the wig history always moving forward um, yeah. through time <laughs> those it sort is... of the geist the 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 but, geist yeah, of the dialectic geist, forever yeah. moving forward <laughs> so i i think there's there's this funny there's this funny part where you can't fully escape the guiding power and you simply yeah. replace it with inferior forms that's it's funny because um i mean it's a, it's a comment that like people 
I, I mean, I know that Levi and I follow quite closely, like people like Viveki and Peugeot in their conversations are talking a lot about how we've, we, we've come to an era in which we've stripped away any way of talking in the cultural and intellectual in worlds of what in the ancient worlds and the medievals were called angels and demons or the gods. And yet now we come to an age in which, you know, these parasocial relationships and these uh, interpersonal agencies are so apparent all of a sudden with stuff like AI that we're like frantically running around and, you know, coming up with words like egregores or, you know, et cetera, to try and bottle in these phenomena that we have kind of pushed away and secularized consistently to the point of making them, like you're saying, Harry, you, you go from an era in which spiritual discourse is rich to then just saying, well, there's an invisible hand guiding the market. It's like, what does, well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, what's the <laughs> invisible hand? You know, what, what spirit is that? Is it the spirit of justice? You know, is it this, because, because justice is, is big in the economic, ancient economic framework, you know, mm. um, justice is a big player in that, but we don't seem to think of, you know, we don't tend to think of justice and, and economics in the same category unless, you mm. know, well, look going. at Aristotle, right? It, 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 the Aristotle works on these fractions and number lines of re, of uh, retributive justice, right? Mm. And so, and so he thinks of these terms uh, justice. I'm just recalling here. He he describes it as this um these losses and gains where mm-hmm. you and then you have to and you have to make up for a loss in addition and so on. And that's what we call justice and punishment and retribution and so on. But um. It's interesting just on that on that point about these the this um, replacing these sp- guiding spirits. This seems to be our answer to you know what actually is the ghost in the machine. So we we have to come back to well, how do we explain these processes guiding something or other? How do we explain why people take certain actions? Mm. And and at the end, we might just in uh, in the end, if we're completely uh, mechanistic, we might just say, well, it's just the laws of nature. It's just these. It's just these forces of the universe. But again, you can't escape these external guiding powers. Uh, they just seem to become more uh, simple and um, less rich. Well, I, 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 that just reminds me of one of like Levi's favorite um, cinematic lines, which is Jeff Goldblum's iconic uh, stutter from Jurassic Park. <laughs> Levi, I'll let, I'll let you take it from here. <laughs> you know, life finds a way. Yeah, so that's like, that's it. It's like, what does that line mean? Like, you've gone to the most like mechanistic baseline of just laws of nature, and then you encounter agencies and the impossibility of the systems that need that higher explanation. And then you just come to lines like, well, life uh, finds a way. And the explanatory power of that idea, that sentence is is no better or worse than saying something like um, God has preordained all things to enjoy in his goodness. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, it's just, it just is, it's, yeah. it really is just this, uh, an explanation. It's completely arbitrary, right? It's just, it just is. Mm. And the, I think it's so different from the attitude, this reduced autonomy that I think the, the modern mind sees itself in at, at just at the whim of mechanisms outside of their control. The, we, you know, reading through the Iliad, they're warring against the um, the interests of the gods who can yes. insp- mm. who can put the fear in the army and can turn the uh, turn the tides of war. 
the the heroes here are warring against this um fighting for autonomy over their fates um throughout the entire story this is this completely different to the mechanistic rolling over and taking yeah to like really emphasize that point it's like some of the favorite parts that i remember of the iliad when when sam and i were reading it for the first time i don't know how many years Mm. ago now 10 years ago um (laughs) i like when when you see like diomedes or some other greek hero you know chase down yeah, gods yeah. on the battlefield you know diomedes <laughs> right, like wounds <laughs> like wounds the god of war himself like wounds the goddess of beauty exactly. diomedes is just unchained like the, the gods come running back to olympus complaining They're like who is this you know like can we do something about <laughs> right. this guy but here's the interesting thing because i was going to bring up more or less what levi just did is that as you mentioned harry the men in the war are completely more or less subject to the will of the gods it seems However, you get characters like Odysseus and Diomedes and et cetera, and, and Hector, I think, in some occasions too, who when a god arrives in the battlefield, these heroes, Hector, Odysseus, Diomedes, they see it, they see the god arrive and they say, oh, this isn't fair. You know, there goes Ares disguised as so-and-so. And uh, what are we going right. to do now? Zeus or, has abandoned us. Yeah. Oh, there goes uh, Athena. She's she's holding Odysseus's hand through that fight. Like, uh, this isn't, this isn't. Right. The, the interesting thing, right, is that these Hector, Odysseus, Diomedes, these are the people who are, like, exemplary. Like, Hector is one of the most, if not the most exemplary hero of, like, the ancient world. Hector is just the best guy around. Like, he's just so noble. When does Hector mm. do anything that isn't upright and just? But the interesting thing is that the characters who seem to be above the masses insofar as when the gods arrive and try and turn the tide of battle, these are the three or four few heroes who can recognize what's going on and try and rally the men against it. Say, no, 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 it's all right. Look, it's Ares. It's not the Trojans suddenly becoming masters of battle. We will beat them eventually. But look, you can see the spirit of Ares is now on their side and we'll have to consolidate right. and, and regroup. But it's interesting because these are the people who are attentive to the enemy. These are the educated men. These are the people who are attentive mm-hmm. to the spirit of wisdom, Athena, who again is a feminine force in Greek mythology. It's very interesting. She's war and wisdom. And she's also a craftswoman. She's a weaver. So she's marrying all these kind of really intricate strands together. Again, she's a weaver, right? So she's marrying all the <laughs> intricate strands together into one character. And it's all these heroes who are capable at the end of the day of not being blindly possessed by the gods in the heat of battle right. to their detriment are people are men who have been attentive to the feminine spirit of wisdom. And it's interesting because I, I think we introduced this idea a while ago and never carried it out. But again, going back to the Ajax Odysseus distinction, like, so after the death of Achilles, there's the question of who will inherit his armor. The contest falls down between Ajax, who's the strongest he, the kind of guy in the Iliad who's just lifting boulders somehow and throwing them and crushing, you know, two men at a time. And then Odysseus, who's this, who's the strategist, who's devised the Trojan horse. And there's two components to the to the challenge. The first is a contest of physical strength, which I think it ends up being a race, a, a foot race. And the second is a contest of oratory. So again, for the Greek hero here to succeed and gain prestige and to fulfill their heroic role it requires not just the prowess but requires cunning and mental acuity so in the race which happens first odysseus knows he's gonna get beaten by ajax he's like well this isn't you know i'm I'm not anywhere near as strong as this guy so he prays to athena and lo and behold ajax slips and falls in his face (laughs) right and odysseus just chariots and fires his way to the end of the end of the race ajax is furious right so they get up for the oratory and 
Odysseus gives this very long and well thought out and elaborate piece of rhetoric about how he is the savior of the Greek army at Troy because of his stratagems and because of his relationship with the goddess Athene who who's carried them through the war. And then Ajax gets up and he goes, I am Ajax. I am Ajax. I am Ajax. And that's all he can say. And Ajax is like the sound of a dying person scream. <laughs> it's like a, an alliterative device. So Ajax is just ego Ajax, ego Ajax, you know, like nothing. Yeah. It's like this call into the void, right? Yeah, it is a call into the void. And then he loses, of course. And in and in the play about, I can't remember the, the if the play is women of something, I think, or, or the suppliant women, maybe. Uh, anyway, I, I, should, I should have looked this up, but it's one of the Greek tragedies. Ajax then goes into a blind frenzy right he's overtaken by a, a demonic spirit uh, a malignant spirit and he draws his sword and he goes he goes to find Odysseus and the Ithacan uh, like soldiers and to slaughter them all and he does it and then all of a sudden the malignant spirit leaves him and he realizes he's standing in a field of sheep and he's just butchered a ram which he thought was Odysseus and all these sheep around it and he kills himself he realizes that for all his prowess which he and everybody else knows is unmatched now that achilles is gone he will always be susceptible to this blindness to this potential to be overtaken by these malignant spirits and and mm. he is in this hopeless situation whereas odysseus apart from like we've mentioned one or two lapses of reason like taunting the cyclops very infrequently throughout the stories falls into these unthinking moments where he does something mm. completely irrational and and uncharacteristic of a, of a which is this hero. right and it's this warning against hubris it's this mm. um you only know so far you and you don't know what you don't know mm. and that and i suppose that's reinforcing this um this uh, imperative to examine and um to really understand what's going on i just had a point as well when we were talking about these forces of nature and how the educated men sort of um they positioned themselves above and rallied against the force of the world. And I just wanted to make the point that it seems to me, especially in the Iliad, that these heroes, they impose their will against the forces of the world and become in themselves forces of nature and to the benefit of, you know, their armies and so on. That seems to be the goal of the heroic Greek is to rise to the level of a force of nature. And that's, that's the goal, right? Because there's no great end for anybody in Greek religion, right? In, in the in the way that Homer presents it. Achilles is found wandering a gibbering shade in Hades later. <laughs> it's like, really? That's terrible. All these, like Odysseus's mother's down there. Even this, you know, poet, um, Teresius, the wise man close to the gods. He's kind of got a better in the stick because he's kind of sensible in the underworld, unlike the other spirits. Like he's got a bit of rational acuity left. Um, but you know, you, you just see like all these ghosts gibbering past when Odysseus visits the underworld, and some of them are heroes. And um, right. it's few and far between that you get a hero who is like Menelaus is one of the few, because um, he marries Her Helen, who is promised the guarantee. We find out when Telemachus visits him, promised the guarantee of going to the Elysian Fields, which is like that's <laughs> that's the heroic goal is to, like you said, to be on the level of the forces of nature because there is nothing for you after death. And so it's, it's, it's actually, it reminds me a little bit in, in a weird pagan way of like the theology of theosis in particularly in Eastern and Orthodox Christianity is that the purpose of life on earth is it is a training ground. It is a, a testing ground to become like the divine such that when you die, 
you are ready to enter into the presence of the divine. It, it is the idea of becoming like God. I mean, in the Hebrew, like the, the word that is all, most often applied to the Lord is also applied, Elohim, to angels and even to Samuel, when after the prophet Samuel dies, you know, mm. and he's summoned by Saul and his necromancer, uh, Samuel is described as an Elohim coming up from the ground. Um, right. So there's an interesting, you know, the, the, the idea that... Um, it's not this what, rigid designator. The, yeah. This is an attainable, another attainable quality. Yeah, yeah. To be, and, and, and that's a huge part of, you know, the visions in, in Revelation is that, you know, these, these uh, saints and elders are becoming like unto the angels and filling angelic offices in the end times. But yeah, there's even a hint of this idea in the Greek stories that a true hero must be attentive to the divine such that they can encounter it properly in life. Because if you don't, then you're going to Hades like everybody else. And that is a terrible fate. And it's very hard to escape, but you you get just a sparse handful of characters who live a life correctly such that they can encounter the divine in death as well. Like if they've encountered it correctly in life such that they can move on to it in death as well. Mm. And that's a huge part of, um, yeah, it's a huge part of um, metempsychosis. Like the, the transmigration of the soul in Plato is that like a, a, attentiveness to the divine guiding spirit to the, to the daemon is the only safeguard against the pitfalls of the transmigration of the soul, like the myth of Ur and the Republic, um, which Levi translated, not that part, but, you know, part of Republican issue, yeah. um, is one of the famous three, like, going down to the underworld and coming back up myths. You know, you got, as Levi translated, it was um, the, the most famous is the myth of the cave, you know, going down into the, the shadowy world and then coming back up. But the myth of Ur is one of those. We have this young man who has a vision of the af- afterlife and all the souls choosing the new life and so a soul that has been in tune with the divine will go and spend some time in paradise but they will come back eventually but the the one safeguard they have is is that all the souls choose the life they will live when they are brought back into the mortal world and so you have this Mm. famous scene of all these souls looking at all these lives and they're kind of like little orbs on the table or something weird you know and they're able to pick them up and consult them and um the souls of people who are uneducated, who have not been attentive to the divine, just grab it, whatever, like, oh, yeah, that one looks good. And then they pick it up and they realize after they've chosen it that, oh, yeah, the first couple of years I live as a tyrant and I'm rich. And then, oh, no, I go into exile and I'm beheaded or something, you know. And then the philosopher's soul is there and he goes and he picks up the life of like a simple swineherd or something. He's like, oh, yeah, look at this. I'm content for my entire life. I'll choose this as my my next trip to the mortal plane, you know, and, and, so um, I wonder if that if the learned men like Odysseus they're able to um, perceive that, and that the simplicity. So if he if in the back of the mind or if in the mind of a, of a Greek reading this, there's that sort of understanding. You know, is it the case that when Odysseus is uh, affable with the swineherder, it's sort of like he's he's um you know talking to a fellow traveler on this soul journey. Mm, yeah, I, I think there is like a level to which yeah, like a true hero has to go beyond mortal acts of prowess and be always attentive to the divine um and i mean i think if you were like trying to count the amount of times that athena rocks up and helps odysseus throughout homer's works you know you'd 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 lose track very fast it's just it's frequent but he's attentive to it like she'll be there and he'll say oh goddess what are you doing here 
and she'll say, oh, you know, well, I'm here for this reason. But he's, he's always on the lookout. And Telemachus inherits a bit of that too. Like Telemachus has encounters with Athena and is sort of perceptive to her guidance. And um, I was just going to throw something out there that maybe Levi would speak on mm. for yourself about, as you just said, Samuel, the um, this idea that there's nothing really, it's, it's not a great deal um, after the end, after you taste Black Death, there's nothing really good on the other side. And I wonder if this sort of um, plays into how the the obsession with the the Greek concept of honor, and um, and how that plays out, uh, especially as it as it pertains to the taking of trophies and the regaining and losing of honor, and you know, and what my funeral is going to be like, and those types of questions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting uh, point to hit on because the occasion for the games that we see in the Iliad, is, of course, the death of Patroclus. Mm. They're funeral games that to celebrate his honour. Um, and it's, uh, you know, probably one of the most distasteful parts of the Iliad is when Odysseus drags Hector's body around the walls of Troy. Whoa, 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 Odysseus. Oh, bah! Achilles. <laughs> Don't slander the man. <laughs> Achilles. Achilles. <laughs> oh, no, let me never speak ill of my dear Odysseus again. Um <laughs> No, but where, where Achilles drags Hector's body around in order to mm. cause dishonor to it. And yeah, and you see this, and again, there's this, the contest at uh, Achilles' death between to, to get his armor, because his armor has been made by the gods, um, and it, it is in such way a, a form of honor. And I mean, it's such a high status symbol that Ajax kills himself and he doesn't attain it. Exactly. Well, I mean, there's also the fact that Ajax talks about him having realized having awoken from his stupor he he sees himself as dishonored mm. because mm. he's he's so utterly lost himself mm. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure there's a reference to dishonor um it's just such a yeah I mean it's and it's sort of material obsession with you know tr- with yeah with trophies right. with um so but then also is... no I was just gonna say that also this this recognition at so many other times where, yeah, you know, you go down you visit the underworld and, you know, it turns out actually all those trophies and uh, all the trophy taking you did and all the supposed honor you won has, you know, still left you as a, a gibbering shade. And it's like, there's this obsession with it. It's almost a, I would almost say it's misguided because it doesn't seem to be very successful for people such as Achilles, but then mm. again, he also in a sense dies dishonored. But yeah, mm. no, you were you were gonna kind of come well, up think, to something, Harry. Well, I just wanted to. You just touched on a, a key point, which sort of really stands out to me, which is this materiality of honor, and it's, it's mm. so attached to trophies and mm. to collecting armor, and it's attached to external validation and recognition. Um, and I just uh, we've spoken before about how that's sort of different to the chivalric sort of concept of honor which is more to do with congruence with internal values mm, and and doing yeah. the right thing and and following what you believe in you know regardless of the external outcome mm. you know i can't think of many um stories of errant knights where they're concerned about what their funeral will be like uh, or, or those types of questions a little tease because we will be covering this at a, in an undisclosed work in the future but in sir gawain the green knight um which yeah uh, um We'll, we'll be definitely exploring this work in very big detail in uh, an upcoming issue. But in that story, 
Gawain comes back with a trophy and he's like mortified. Exactly. <laughs> he just hates himself. He's like, oh no, I've got a girdle. Exactly. From the time I confronted the Green Knight and survived, I'm never going to live this down. And everyone else is praising him. <laughs> and he's like, oh, this is like such a sad ending. Like Gawain has just disgraced himself. Because like you said, the chivalric ideal is to be congruent with an internal system of values and the girdle's a constant reminder that Gawain failed that even though to everyone else it's like oh you brought back a trophy from your contest with the green knight which you survived in in, in this impossible outcome it to Gawain it's just the biggest shame he's ever he's got to carry around for the rest of his life yeah and it's interesting because it's contrasted so directly with what he had at the beginning which was inscribed on the inside of Gawain's shield yeah. the pentangle with Mary and the five yeah. chivalric the five chivalric virtues yeah which right. he sort of almost systematically breaks and loses along the way yeah. and the girdle mm. is in the end the symbol of you know how far he's fallen yeah and it's interesting because he goes from like the pentangle on one side and then on the inside of the icon so that he's always looking at the, the mother of god um like not only does he break each one of the five virtues kind of systematically as you mentioned but um he his his relationship with the feminine shifts over the course of that story mm. and the girdle is the new symbol of like this is your new relationship with the feminine now you know you've 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 gone from adoring the highest the mother of god to wearing like this somewhat scandalous having a somewhat scandalous piece of garment that you have to carry around which was given to you by a woman who tried you know to seduce you <laughs> and uh and whom you sort of let do that as a quick throwback uh look at the um the old man in the sea with the return of the the skeleton of the of the fish right mm. this is a this is a trophy that's returned that the people are mar- that marvel at but our friend, the fisherman, you know, this is this reminder of this uh, harrowing experience. Uh, yeah. it's, it's sort of the same type of thing. A trophy's been returned, which is not unlike, you know, the antlers of a, of a deer or, or the yeah. head of, a, of a bear or something like that. But, the, but the, um, the experience attached to it doesn't carry the same sort of Greek honor that um, perhaps he wished it did. Yeah. Um, uh, interesting as well is in Beowulf, uh, when, when Beowulf picks up the mythic sword and from the bottom of the lake and uses it to slay uh, the mother of Grendel. After he does so, the blade dissolves. And it's like, no, you don't get a trophy. <laughs> like, not allowed. You know, you're a Christian hero now. <laughs> you don't get to take that sword back and boast about it. <laughs> um, which is interesting because boasting is a big part of the Anglo-Saxon <laughs> stories, right? But, um, and, and then it's not like Beowulf doesn't constantly boast. But again, he qualifies those. He follows them up. They're not errant boasts. But yeah, I find it fascinating. It's not just the trophy aspect of that sword that's going on. There's a lot of interesting elements, but I thought I'd flag it there because it's a, it's a funny moment where he, yeah, he slays the monster with this magical blade he finds down at the bottom of the sea. And then, um, yeah, upon committing this mighty deed, the blade then just dissolves. And it's like, well, there you go. No reminders there. As, as a sort of a, um, a bit of an aside, just throwing back again to the... Um these questions of education and, and shifting priorities. What do you think that the trophy of modern society has become? You know, what, what is actually, what's the honour game that's being played out in um, modern education and, and society now? That's interesting because the superficial answer is money. Yeah. But as Rob Henderson says, it's like, well, plenty of people will sacrifice money to win social status Mm. honor by any other name 
but it yeah it doesn't it certainly doesn't feel the same as a greek myth so it's it is an interesting question i i wonder if now quite often it seems like the purpose of money is i don't want to get and i don't want to get like and again like <clears throat> i don't want to get too contentious because at the end of the day like a lot of this project is just about helping people fall in love with the classics and i don't want to you know uh put forward any any other program really but i will make this comment that it seems like what people do with money like you said is convert them into other kinds of citizens and a lot of the time it that seems to be picking a a cause and um kind of converting your legacy into into the cause like i'm, I'm trying to Trying to put this as in there's, some, there's something you you kind of get behind is that there's this yeah. um yeah you build a vehicle that you're then going to ride into the sunset yeah yeah well i mean some people do that literally they're building rockets and all these yeah, 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 yeah. but um but uh, i think like there's these weird um and it's been going on is the myth of american philanthropy is like is, right. is been going on for over 100 years right um yeah. but you know with you know the carnegie's and rockefellers and all these you need your name on a hospital yeah and then you got gates now and um and bezos just you know he he just pledged his fortune to fighting you know um climate change etc and there's there's plenty of these people it's like like you're saying levi it seems like money in itself isn't the trophy there's sort of a um yeah people have this relationship with it which is like well i'm attaining it such that i can make these big philanthropic shows and sort of Mm. I don't know what are they trying to do? They're trying to like appease the guilt of like all the you know sweatshops they've built in your life. I don't know. Like, I don't think yeah. you know Bill Gates has a spotless conscience because what what you know where where are the mines that in the where, where in the world are those mines that are digging up the ores for your computer chips? You know. Yeah. You see uh, it as well with um, um, take Peter Singer for example. For those of you who are familiar with him, mm, who's mm. who's a, sort of a, a modern day moral philosopher. But what he's most known for, and let's say what his legacy will be where he finds a social status is in all the work he's done in animal rights mm, over mm. all the years um and he's also the sort of grandfather of effective altruism as a, mm. as a system let's say mm. but very much sort of the animal rights movement is is where he finds his his legacy mm. and i mean i don't know he's, pro- he's probably a pretty rich man at this point but that's not what you you know him for. It, it isn't the money. It's mm. the it's the status. It's the project. It's the oh animal rights. That's Peter Singer. Like mm. oh that's a that's a name. It's an association. It's your yeah. name in a hospital. But there's there's like idiosyncratic versions of it. Like you know Musk building rockets. It's like well you know he, he seems to think that's like benefiting humanity. And it's like well okay maybe I don't I don't know. <laughs> I think there's probably <laughs> other ways to benefit humanity than blowing up these big tubes full of liquid you know a helium or whatever it is i can't remember but um no yeah it's, it's just interesting that he's probably one of the more idiosyncratic one who get ones who get some headlines but there's a um well it's yeah. almost like these the media storm is is the modern equivalent of the uh the the poems and songs being written about about you the the folk mm. tales being spread around about that your great tales and so on i think yeah. our our modern version is the is the the hyperculture and the connected media ecosystem yeah maybe one day you'll get a martin scorsese biopic you know 
of name, right. <laughs> name immortalized, you know. Uh, yeah, but like but, uh, that but, happens. Not always to people's benefit. Like the social network makes doesn't make anyone like Mark Zuckerberg, but his name won't. Like he he got his biopic, <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you also see it in, but it's it's different. It's sort of a poor man's version of it because I'm, right. like, I'm assuming because the way you started this conversation, Sam, was talking about Mary Harrington post post little. I want to get back onto that. And you yeah. want, you want to get back to this, I'm sure, because. That ties in with this connection between modern media culture mm. and mm. Um, the, the ancient story of the epic. Because sort of the way mm. that, um, or in that conversation at least, that we're referencing here, mm. uh, that Jonathan Pajot was talking with Mary Harrington. Mm. And Pajot was pointing out this idea that, you know, the ancient epic and the modern media, modern media cycle are so similar because attention is the primary commodity yeah the primary currency but the difference is that it's fast-paced constant changing attention in the modern yeah whereas in the ancient epic there's you know this sort of you tell the story you tell the tale and it has to be important and it has to be you know at the both grounded but also mythic in a sense that it can last for an eternity yeah yeah i think because so this is something I was uh, talking to my good friend Nathan about a, a couple of days ago is that I think this is like a, maybe a little intuition I have like it let's say that tomorrow I become the you know a series of bizarre events I become the education minister for Australia or New South Wales or whatever right what I would want to do with the education system is really just salute like just like um, double down there that education should just make it interesting nothing else right like, <laughs> right because because education at the end of the day is going to be arbitrary. We, we should know by now that the Enlightenment was off on a lot of things. And one of those big things is that we are no, there is no blank slate. There is no a priori system which will, which is necessary. You know what I mean? Like there is no reason, and, and people make jokes about this all the time. Like when is, when is school going to teach me how to do my taxes? You know, instead I know about the, you know, mass of an atom. And it's like, there is no a priori list that if you just lay in a bathtub and meditated for 24 hours, you'd be like, oh, I've unlocked all the things that the human mind needs to learn <laughs> in an educational system. It's arbitrary, you know, like, yeah. yeah. So if it's going to be arbitrary, make it arbitrary in an interesting way. The, and the, what got me on this, this train of thought around the time that I was beginning to put together the ideas for how, like starting this project, the Incidental and Cyclical, was just the fact that at a certain point, let's say in English-speaking cultures or, or in, in European culture, uh, if if you were lower middle class and let's say in a sort of pride and prejudice scenario or a little women scenario, bumped your way into some aristocratic ball or whatever, right? You, you managed to, to get a ticket in, right? Uh, if you'd read Shakespeare, you'd be fine, right? Like, you'd be fine. You could sit there and have a conversation, right? And and that, that happens in these stories, right? Is that Sometimes parodically, so like one of my favourite moments in Ulysses is the discussion of Hamlet that they have, that Stephen Dedalus, the young student, has with these like senior advertising men. And it's a really humorous scene. But yeah, there's like this, this democratic level to which education has made this person interesting. They've read Shakespeare, they can have an interesting conversation. And I was right. my friend, there's a shared cultural ground. Yeah, and I showed to my friend Nathan about how we don't we don't have really any more that well we're post literate right so we don't people don't pay attention to an idea of a, a canon or a corpus that they have to read and in a lot of ways maybe film and television has replaced that right like I can go to a 
uh, gathering a party and if someone else has watched let's say Breaking Bad it's like well okay I can have a probably pretty good conversation about that because that's a story with a lot of deep elements and I don't have to agree with you on anything I don't have to agree with your politics I don't have to watch any of the sports you like I don't have to you know like any anything about you but if we both shared this this cultural beat which has a fairly deep level of storytelling then we can have a good conversation but there is still like even in the tv and and movie world there's not really any canon uh and there's not really any as we're talking about with like you know oh well maybe one day you 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 do something philanthropic and they make a biopic about you that's that's a poor man's version of the epic you know what i mean it's Mm. a poor man's version of a literary achievement i think just just tacking on to that at the end um a real concern a real concern in the humanities in terms of this shared cultural understanding to have these great epics that everyone could have read and they've read the same thing. And there's something you can talk about that we've all read Shakespeare and we can, we can discuss that is that with the growth of AI and the algorithm and everyone being cordoned off into their own, uh, you know, content pathways, you know, there's going to, I think there's going to be a time when people are going to be uh, consuming content, which they believe is the same, but it's actually distinct because it's mm. automatically catered to your personal interests. Mm. There's not actually going to be um, an, intersubject- uh, an intersubjective culture. It's going to be a completely subjective culture mm. there, there, because there won't be, you won't have watched the same movie. You won't have read the same book. You will have read your algorithmically um, engineered optimized tailored, version. Yeah. Right. And so this is, this is kind of the interesting thing, like, like you say, you know, if there is ultimately no tabula rossa and there's no a priori education system that we can appeal to, let's just make our, let's just make everyone interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, the taxes, you know, taxes, even if they're inevitable, they don't, they're not interesting, but yeah. what is interesting in life are the things that people have created and it's re-engaging with that culture, yeah. which is so, which is what's important. And this is the project, right? Like this is the incidental encyclical at its core is that the, the examine, I mean, like we we're saying, the examine life ultimately, hopefully, deeply brings you into a better relationship with something higher. And throughout the past couple of hundred years, as we've been talking about, that something higher has been rebranded as, you know, various knockoff versions of it, you know, liberty, equality, invisible hand on the market, progress, the spirit of Britannia etc and all these lesser versions or these kind of weird knockoff versions only go to prove that you just like as you've been saying how you just can't get away with um admitting that something's there so let's just call it for what it is and say you know it's goodness truth and beauty because those are pretty irreducible kind of qualities and they're obviously divine because humans know that they exist but struggle to display them frequently we all want those things we just have a hard time embodying them ourselves so it's clearly above us um and you know in that in in this project the examine life we want to be in as good a relationship with those things as we can be because the alternative is the gibbering shades of hades you've you've got a life and the process of examining it is worthwhile because it will bring you into this better relationship and if nothing else, right, it'll make you interesting. Like that's like the <laughs> that's like the you just start with that, right? You know, start with the fact that you know maybe you're, you you'll have a conversation that you go, wow, that was that was good. You know, that was um that got me thinking, and and then you start to realize that that interesting thing, because I mean, interesting it means to not know, right? That's the root of of 
interesting is it means you don't know something. And I've, I remember reading a book by Brian Doherty called Theatre of War. He did um, great tragedies for, for returned veterans um, to help them deal with PTSD. Really interesting book. But in that, he talked about how when he was learning the classics and from this old um, professor teaching in Latin and Greek, the guy told him, oh, you can't use the word interesting, right? And you don't, can't use the word nice because nice means stupid and interesting means to not know. Uh, the guy said, oh, I picked up on that. And I'm like, I agree with a nice thing, sure. But uh, the interesting one, I'm like, no, I want to not know things. You know, if I say I'm interested in something, like I'm happy to admit, you know, like Socrates said, I all that I know is that I know nothing, right? And so um, I think what I'm trying to get at is that when I say that I want education to make people interesting or to make me interesting, as arbitrary as it might sound, there is actually something deep to that because <laughs> it's all about admitting you don't know something. Uh, and that's what is great about these kind of conversations um, is that is when you open yourself up to that and to not knowing, it's like that's when the examining starts to happen. Well said. Good stuff. Um, well, I don't know. I feel like that's, that's kind of fairly full circle. We've, um, yeah, we've touched, I guess, on... Some of the things, most of the things you wanted to touch on, Odysseus and his embodiment of ideals and the relevance of those ideals and those relationships to us today. And um, yeah, I hope I hope people got something out of this because I think it was a good, I felt like it was a good conversation. Yeah, I think so too. I think it was fairly wide ranging, but um, I hope we kept it consistent enough for people to follow. As mm. long as it's interesting. As long as it's interesting, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, very cool. Well, there we go. Thanks so much for this, guys. This has kind of been a wrap-up discussion for issue two. We we wanted to kind of give a bit of closure on the issue and just probe, uh, yeah, the most fascinating character that we kind of encounter that issue and maybe will ever encounter in the entire project, which is Odysseus. We're now beginning work on issue three, which will be out in September. Um, and we're working very frantically on it because we've all got busy things on. Levi's going to Europe to liaison with the spirits of the uh, great minds of the past. He's going to somewhere in the Mediterranean to find a portal to Hades, I believe. <laughs> He's going to make a blood <laughs> sacrifice and chat to Socrates, I think. Well, I'm, Find I'm, the Eleusian I'm, mysteries. Uh, I mean, I'm going to Rome, so maybe I'll find something hidden underneath the Vatican. Ah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, there's surely something down there. Um, <laughs> and the uh, catalog section in the library. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the the banned books um <laughs> but yeah we, we're working on this this upcoming issue we're moving through this sort of saga of themes from the journey up in troubled seas and the next one will be taking us yeah into new territory into um new novels i think we'll be having i'll tease this now we're having, we're having an australian novel as the modern one um which we're excited to talk about you know because um we got to we got to represent our own culture a little bit, I think. <laughs> as much as we are infatuated and in love with, yeah, the ancient past and the medieval world, uh, we are Aussies, and uh, that's that's definitely part of the project. So um, we'll be talking about uh, an Aussie novel. We'll be encountering a bit of hagiography and uh, a bit of Roman philosophy. So that's the teaser, but I won't divulge anything more. But yeah, stay tuned. We'll be doing some posts about that upcoming and another preview discussion, like we did for issue two um at some point so yeah it's the calendar ahead and i'd like to thank everybody for listening i'd thank you levi and you harry for your time thank you for setting this up sam a pleasure as always you'll be hearing from us at some point in the near future thanks very much for listening